Are you ever curious what's going on behind the scenes in Hollywood? You watch a Netflix show or a Marvel movie and you wonder, why was that person in it? Why did this movie get made? I'm Matt Bellany, founding partner of Puck News, and I'm covering the inside conversation about money and power in Hollywood. With my new show, The Town, on the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm going to take you inside Hollywood with exclusive insight on what people in show business are actually talking about. Multiple times a week, we're going to bring you short, digestible episodes featuring some of the smartest people I know breaking down the hottest topics in entertainment to tell you what's really going on. Follow The Town now and listen on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. All right, welcome back, everybody. This is uh, Larry Wilmore. You're listening to Black on the Air. Appreciate you uh, tuning in. Man, we've got a really, really cool episode uh, this week. I don't have much of a weigh-in today. I think um, I'll have some stuff to say next week. I've just been kind of busy. And this is a really good episode. I talked to this person yesterday. Uh, I thought we would talk about Ukraine. And I am not an expert in that area, but I had a really good conversation with Julia Yaffe, who's the founding partner and Washington correspondent of Puck. Uh, and that's a kind of a new media venture, and they cover the inside conversations of American power in Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and Washington. And she's been doing some really good uh, journalism on this, and um, she's actually from Russia. And so we just talked about it all, Putin and everything. We talked yesterday. I'm speaking to you right now on Saturday. And I think you'll enjoy that conversation. You know, it's an ongoing situation there. It's pretty fluid. Um, you know, it's really tough, man. My heart goes out to those people in the Ukraine. I mean, can you imagine just this shit happening to you? And, you know, I'm people fleeing their country, for Christ's sakes, you know, and you see places being bombed where pregnant women are, you know, dying. And then, you know, the, you saw that story of the woman who, you know, they were trying to save and she ended up dying and then the baby did too. It's terrible. I mean, there's all kinds of stories like this, you know. Um, but the issue is very layered and it's complicated. There's a lot going on and it's ongoing. So I thought, you know what, let's cover this as best as we can. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Julia. And I will be back next week with more commentary myself on who knows. And I think you'll enjoy next week's uh, conversation. I'm going to talk about that new Lakers series, Winning Time. <laughs> we have a special guest um, who works on that show next week. So that's going to be fun, you guys. That's going to be fun. But right now, let's, um, you know, let's talk about Ukraine, talk about what's going on 
and uh, we'll have Julia Yaffe right up. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. All right, welcome back, everybody. Yo, sometimes we got to get ourselves educated. You know, keep up on world events. It's tough these days because so much is going on. But today we have a special guest. She's the founding partner and Washington correspondent of Puck. And this is a new media venture covering the inside conversations in the four corners of American power, Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, but most importantly, Washington. Julia Yaffe, welcome to Black on the Air. It's so nice to have you here. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Julia, your articles, I was reading up in these, man, you've really been covering this war. And it's this thing just really came upon us like there were trepidations of it, and now it's here, and just being all in it and uh, seeing the news and reading all about it. What's the latest right now from your point of view of what's going on? So the latest is that uh, there's still heavy fighting going on in Ukraine. Right. Russia is still punishing Ukrainian civilians mm -hmm. for the bad intelligence that Vladimir Putin got and the miscalculations he made. Interesting. And for the fact that his army is not doing a really good job. So they're basically punishing Ukrainian civilians for that. And they're bombing residential areas and hospitals and theaters and the casualty count among civilians is just climbing every day and it's awful. And then there's also these negotiations going on between the Russian and Ukrainian side that people really want to hope work out, but I think are just a fig leaf. Are these back channel negotiations or no? No, they're official. They're, they're official. official. Okay. Yeah. Did Putin, is he in the position that I felt Saddam Hussein was in where people weren't really being honest with him about the state of affairs, like in regards to the military or how this would actually pan out. Because it seems like there's a disconnect between what we thought was Russian might and what is actually happening. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's been known for a long time to get not the best intelligence. Mm -hmm. And he clearly did not get great intelligence here. I think he was being told that everything's set, everything's ready to go. And if we go into Ukraine, we'll be greeted as liberators. And I think in, he also gave himself bad intelligence. I think he's in, he's very isolated. Mm -hmm. He's surrounded by only, you know, a couple people. His inner circle has shrunk mm -hmm. to the point where it's just a couple people. And they're kind of even more hawkish and crazy than he is. And he's convinced himself that Ukrainians are basically Russians and that mm -hmm. they want to be part of Russia, which Ukrainians are showing every day is not true. I also think that he did not realize the state of the Russian military. Right. And I hear a lot of Russian commentators and Russian friends say, you know, he thought that for some reason, or apparently he thought that for some reason the Russian military would be spared the kind of corrosive corruption that is endemic everywhere in Russian life that, you know, if he allotted a certain amount of money to the military or the military intelligence, that it wouldn't get stolen. 
like everything else does, but it seems to have gotten stolen. And in fact, we saw him raiding the offices, of, well, not him personally, but the offices of the foreign intelligence branch of the FSB, which is like his alma mater. Mm-hmm. The head of that service and his deputy were arrested. And it seems like they're being accused of stealing the money that was set out for creating a kind of astroturf movement pro-Russian movement in Ukraine that would be there to kind of welcome the Russian military and kind of take the baton politically. And I'm glad it's happening. I'm glad that the Russian military is just so clearly useless. I was going to say being themselves. Right. Right. I mean, (laughs) because I remember in 2017, I think I went, you know, during the height of Russiagate, I, I think I went hoarse screaming into the void and nobody was listening to me. Uh, everybody was saying, oh, Vladimir Putin elected Trump and they've been grooming him since 1987 mm. and they've thought of all this stuff and they're so good. And I was like, have you ever been to Russia? Yes, that's right. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. And I went in 2017 to Russia to do a big piece for The Atlantic and uh, interviewed a lot of people in Russia, including people who are kind of close to the government. Mm-hmm. And they were like, I read American coverage of Russia and they seem to think we're Germany as opposed to these like messy, incompetent, like, like, why do they think that nothing works in this country, but this somehow magically perfectly works? Like the evil is always mitigated by incompetence and stupidity. Greed and graft uh, corruption, but also just stupidity. Yeah. Like there was, wow. um, there was a rally today. Um, we're recording this on Friday. There was a big rally in uh, Moscow that was like this astroturf rally to celebrate the anniversary of the annexation of Crimea in 2014. They do that every year, and they compel people who work for the government to bring in their whole staffs. And in the middle of his speech, like the feed went out and the mic went out, and people were like, "Man, you can't, you guys can't even do like a Nuremberg rally, right?" Like, you'll even fuck that up. Now, let me ask this, because you're making the allusions to Germany, and I assume you mean Nazi Germany. Yeah, yeah. Because it seems like Putin is both identifying with the Nazis and (laughs) blaming them at the same time. Like, you know, some people have compared this to when Hitler went into the Sudetenland, you know, I think it was in 39 or whatever. But I feel like this is not that, you know, that he's making it seem like it's that, which is identifying with Hitler, you know, which is so bizarre, but it's not. What exactly, from your perspective, what is Putin's motivation or was his motivation for this uh, particular invasion? And was Crimea the first step in that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Crimea was the first step in that. I think this is more like the invasion, the German invasion of Poland in September 1st, 1939, But I think what's interesting is that both sides here are throwing around the Nazi analogies. Mm -hmm. So the Russian government is telling its people that this is a war to liberate the Ukrainian people from a Nazi government led by a Jewish president and a Jewish prime minister, which they now explain as kind of very smartly placed puppets because they see Ukraine as just a puppet of the U.S. So the U.S. placed these puppets in Ukraine from his point of view, or that's what he's telling them. Because whether he actually believes that is a separate thing, right? But this is the information. I think he believes it. You think he really does believe it? I think on some level. I mean, he really, for a long time now, and especially during the COVID pandemic where he's been really isolated. Is he like Trump where he says something long enough, he starts believing the thing that he says? Absolutely. 
you know, gets high in his own supply. Right, right, right. Like during the height of COVID, to see him, every anybody who wanted to see him had to quarantine in a hotel for two weeks. Yeah, it was crazy. So like the president of Kazakhstan, had to sit in a hotel room for two weeks and have like food brought to his door. <laughs> his mini bar was empty, boy, after that first day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think he really with like the isolation and the kind of believing his own his own bullshit. Do you think this is something that's been in his mind for a long time or is, as you say, because of this isolation and everything that's happening, that there's actually a change in Putin and he's acting impulsively right now? Is it long-term or is it impulsive? I think it's both. So I think it's been building for a long time. I mean, back in 2008, he told George W. Bush that Ukraine is not a real country. Mm. And he's been saying that for a long time. He believes that, like a lot of people of his generation in Russia, by the way, have never fully come to terms with the fact that Ukraine is a separate country mm-hmm. and that they don't speak Russian there because Ukraine is seen as, you know, the cradle of Russian civilization, mm-hmm. which it is. And the Ukrainians will love to point that out as do the Russians. And right. so there, there's something, especially in this kind of ethno-nationalistic mm-hmm. part of Putin and part of Russian society, there's this idea that they should be part of Russia, they should speak Russian, that Mm -hmm. Ukrainian isn't a real language, that there's no real Ukraine. I mean, he said this on the eve of the invasion. Now, he went into this long history lecture that was deeply inaccurate about how Ukraine was a fiction that was created by the Bolsheviks and kind of slowly cobbled together over the years and is not a real country, and that it was cobbled together over using lands that he says erroneously were historically belonged to Russia. So like, this is a kind of restoration and a, in, in Russian, it's called kind of a gathering of the Russian lands. I think the impulsiveness, the decision to actually go and invade, I think that's a recent thing. And how is he disseminating this information? Is he doing it through news outlets? Is he making speeches about it? Is he talking directly to the Russian people? Because I know you're not even allowed to say there's a war going on. It's a special military, special operation. military operation, right? How is he disseminating this this disinformation, let's say. The first thing he did when he became president 22 years ago mm-hmm. was to take over TV. He was obsessed with television. He would tape back when we had VCRs. He would tape his appearances. Um, he would watch the news. And he would watch and rewatch it to see how he came across. And one of the first things he did was take over all the TV stations. Mm-hmm. There was one little holdout that broadcast online this um, small independent TV station that was just shut down on March 3rd, but basically it's TV. It's, it's a monopoly of TV, but now also other publications. There's basically no independent media left in Russia. And for people to find out what is actually going on in, in Ukraine and to find out what the Russian military is doing in Ukraine, people have to use VPNs. People have to uh, go on Telegram to read these um, channels, including Ukrainian government channels. Because if you watch, and I've been watching a lot of Russian TV recently, if you watch it, it's a totally different war mm-hmm. than the one we're seeing. In this war, it's limited to the East. It is a war of liberation. The Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian military are nationalist battalions. And Ukrainians are greeting the Russians with tears and open arms and um, gratitude. 
there's no civilian casualties and the the Russian army is just being extremely polite and, and trying very hard to avoid all civilian casualties in Ukraine. I mean, it is a different universe and the lying is becoming so before they were a little bit more subtle at it. Like mm-hmm. they would take a little kernel of truth and then kind of spin it up. Now it's just like just wholesale lies. And because of that, and because uh, people have been blanketed with this for basically 22 years now, and especially older people who aren't online much, when they hear this, that's an easy war to support for them. Mm-hmm. And so support of this war is actually very high. It seems to me that after the Cold War, Russia was just kind of a wild place, you know, in terms of the events that was happening. I think none of us could quite get a handle on where it was going, you know. And I think Putin, for the Russian people, kind of stabilized things for them, right? He and and and, and historically high oil prices. Yes, and oil. Oil was the game changer for, mm-hmm. for Russia during that time, in the early aughts. And all that. That's right. Yeah. But it seems like to me, at least from my perspective, that the Russians gave it over to Putin in terms of, okay, we're cool with him. He got us straight, you know, whatever. But I'm wondering, from your perspective, where are the Russian people now? It seems to me, from my observation, they're they're in a do I'm gonna make up a word, a duopoly or something, you know. <laughs> Where it's a good word. If you ask them, I think they'll say something. But how much is going on like behind closed doors like this motherfucker is crazy right now? Or is that happening? I think it 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 is happening and I think the best analogy I can come up with for this is, you know, the US now. Right. Um, there are people who will believe anything Trump says right. and yeah. will and will defend it aggressively and like attack school teachers and nurses. Right. And and they really believe it. And then there's a part of the population that will not believe anything he says, even if he says something true. The truth becomes a casualty of, of the personality. Right. And I think that's, you know, and we have been dealing with this phenomenon only relatively recently. The Russians have had this for 22 years. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of people really do believe this. And they think that he is uh, saving the country. He is saving the world from the evil that is America, which they've now all started calling the empire of lies. And yeah, and he's restoring Russian glory. So, but there has been a shift to the, the first part of your question. In the beginning, it was, there was this kind of tacit social contract with the Russian people, which is, I will make you better off. I will bring stability and economic prosperity, but you stay out of politics. Mm -hmm. And most Russians were happy to do that. Uh, They were happy to start buying Apple products and traveling and having lovely hipster restaurants and stuff. Um, And having, you know, having their salaries go up, like Russians did live better under Putin than they ever had before, ever Ever. in their history. Yeah, amazing. Literally ever. But a lot of that was not him. It was oil. And they could have lived even better if he and his buddies weren't stealing like half of it. And now the contract seems to be, I will restore Russian imperial glory. I will take us into this kind of millenarial biblical style showdown with the evil gender fluid West gender fluid West. I'm telling you in declaring war on Ukraine, he spoke mostly about 
America rather than Ukraine. And yeah. he said one of the one of the reasons we had to do this was because uh, America is trying to impose all these weird values like gender fluidity. I think Tucker Carlson agreed with him. I think uh, um, Fox News yeah. actually agreed with him. He may have made the point before Putin, in fact. So basically, Russia invaded to make sure all bathrooms oh, in Ukraine no. were. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Get your bathroom straight, Ukraine. I must come in to save you. <laughs> no, all gender bathroom. And now it's like, so I will restore this greatness. I will do battle with the evil empire of lies that is America. And you will have to suffer for it. But I think a lot of Russians are agreeing. Is he baiting America right now? I mean, yes, because it seems like he is. I agree with you. I feel like. With all the things, if you do this, it would be something that you would not ever forget. Like he keeps yeah, yeah, saying yeah. these kind of the way he's using his language and everything, his posturing seems to be baiting America into it, like wanting us to impose no fly zones and do something that feels like it's crossing the line. So he has a reason to do God knows what. Oh, yeah, I think you're reading this exactly right. And a lot of people are not. He is itching for a fight yeah, with the U.S. that's what it feels like to me. Yeah, and like he wants it so badly. Mm -hmm. And I think Biden is being smart and not giving it to him mm -hmm. also because it would just be a fucking disaster. I mean, the U.S. and Russia in a war, like it'll make Ukraine look like child's play. Yeah, it'd be crazy. And Biden is in an unfortunate position right now. Well, he's unfairly being attacked as being weak, but I think he's he's taken the JFK Cuban Missile Crisis position right now. You know, where he's tempering certain types of actions that you cannot come back from. Yeah. And I think that's smart. And you can agree about this or that. But once you cross a certain line, people don't realize you can't just say, well, you need to do this. Motherfucker, once you do something, you cross certain lines, <laughs> you can't come back from certain lines. That's right. You can't unexplode a tactical nuke. You cannot. You know? Cannot be done. Do you believe, well, Putin has made the implicit threat. And this one, I'm not sure about. I think he is probably being honest about using tactical nukes. I'm doubtful as to where. I think he would do it if he does do it in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And I think what would happen is, and I've asked people in D.C. about this, both uh, diplomats and people in the Biden administration. And I was like, what will you do if he uses a tactical nuke on Kiev, for example? Clear provocation. Yeah, but and they're all like shrug emoji because, you know, they're not a member of NATO. We don't have a duty to come to their defense, but then somehow you have to answer it. And so like, what is it going to be more economic sanctions? I don't, but it, like, and is that really an effective response? But how do you respond to a nuke without immediately going into that nuclear spiral where we all die. Right now, they seem to be more concerned, and I'm more concerned that he's going to use chemical weapons in Ukraine. Because that's already been done in Syria, and no one did anything. Yeah, and they're making a lot of noise at the UN and in their own media about how the Ukrainians with American help are developing chemical weapons, and how they're going to use them on Russia with mice and birds who will carry it into russia like is this whole bullshit this whole bio lab thing in ukraine yes from what i can tell it's bullshit these are regular labs that work with very standard bacteria and viruses that are even available on the commercial market like if you're a lab and you want to run some experiments on like uh e coli you can go to a company that will sell you some e coli 
for your lab. You could just go to McDonald's, right? Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> as long as you stay out of Subway sandwich shop, I mean, <laughs> this is Jesse Smollett's going to be in trouble because, you know, he's going to go to Subway early in the morning, get real sick. <laughs> Seriously, what effect are the sanctions having right now? Is Russia becoming a failed state at this point because of them? Or what's, what's going to happen here? Well, people were predicting that they would default on Wednesday because that's when a big payment was due on their euro bonds, I believe. And they made the payment, so they avoid a default for now. But people are predicting that a default is imminent. They're cut off from the world. You know, there's already videos coming out of Russia of people fighting over sugar in stores. And uh, prices are going up for basic goods. It's hard to get information. It's just like, it just feels like it's becoming something between Iran and North Korea very, very quickly. You know, it hit, of course, as as these sanctions always do, it first hit the kind of upper middle class, the people who like to travel, who like to buy foreign made goods, who have savings, who have some investments. So for example, the Russian central bank earlier this month said that you can't withdraw more than $10,000 until September, but the rest you could take out in rubles and the ruble is like... People are going to start, you know, making kites out of them soon. Even the pesos, like, damn, ruble. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for compare, it's now hovering around 115 to the dollar. A decade ago, it was 30 to the dollar. Wow. And, you know, I think it'll take a little while longer for the sanctions to really hit average Russians. But mm-hmm. in a place like Moscow, which is my favorite city in the world, or used to be because that Moscow doesn't exist anymore. But mm-hmm. Moscow in 2021 got nine new Michelin stars. And three months into 2022, there are people in Moscow supermarkets. And Moscow is the richest place in Russia. There are people in the supermarket fighting over bags of sugar. Wow. Like that is a really quick precipitous and shocking decline. That is crazy. This war seems to really be shaking up Europe right now. I mean, of course, Ukraine, but I feel like this feels different than the other conflicts we've had around the world in a whole different way. What is your take on that? Yeah, I get it. I think some of it is obviously based in racism because Syria to Europeans was far away. Right. Uh, Myanmar is far away. These people don't look like us. They don't have our same culture. Yeah, those are dirty white people. You know, they're not. I mean, I obviously (laughs) don't share this view, but it is. um, I think there is a lot of racism and kind of Mm -hmm. colonialism at the root of it. But there's also the trauma of World War II that is very, very real and exists Mm -hmm. in Europe and in the former Soviet space in a way that it does not in the in the U.S. So the U.S., lost 400,000 people in World War II. The Soviet Union lost 27 million people. That's crazy. So that is, just to make it even crazier, they lost 15% of their population in four years. 27 million? Yeah. I mean, Germany lost several several million. Britain, I don't have these casualty figures off the top Mm -hmm. of my head, but it decimated Europe and both the population and buildings and cities. And there was the dissolution of the former Yugoslavia, which was violent, but it Mm -hmm. it still, I think, felt different than this does because this is an invasion rather than a collapse. And this is an invasion using a lot of the same technology, like evolved, but basic technology of 
World War II. Fighting is happening in the same places where World War II was happening. And in Europe and in the former Soviet space, the trauma of World War II has been passed down through generations. I mean, this is definitely the case in my family. Uh, this, uh, you know, I talked to a German friend here recently and she was like, has just been sobbing this whole time because it just brings back all these, even though she wasn't alive then and I wasn't alive, this is what, these are like our family stories and our family heirlooms. And it, and I don't think Europe ever thought that this kind of war that looks exactly like World War II that's happening in some of the same places where World War II was fought, I think Europe thought they were past that and that it would never happen again. And yeah. it's like, triggering and bringing up all this historical trauma that people really have in their bones. And, you know, it's interesting is World War II was in the shadow of World War One or the Great Wars, they called it. And right. a lot of people kind of blame Neville Chamberlain for appeasing, but the people agreed with Neville Chamberlain at the time because those scars from World War One were fresh. Yeah, exactly. You know, people forget of the chemical weapons that were used in that war, and the yeah. people suffered horribly in World War One, and so the scars have been there for a long time. You know, World War Two was like a Hitler gave people no choice. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's really what it came down to. Is a lot of Europe afraid that's what's going to happen here? There's going to be a no choice situation. I think there's a fear of that. There's a fear of it spreading, and. Mm -hmm. You know, Russia has already threatened Finland. I mean, they fought a war with Finland in 1939 that they lost. Yes, I was going to say, as Stalin did, yeah. Finland was up for it, by the way, back then. Those <laughs> Finns were not fucking around. Like, no. even, uh, Churchill was like, motherfucker, look at Finland. <laughs> On <laughs> I mean, he didn't skis. Use those words. Yes, On exactly. Skis. They were not fucking around. Really. No, sir. Getting back to your earlier point about how people overestimate the Russians and think they're 12 feet tall and perfect villains. People always ask me, you know, questions premised on the idea that Putin is a great strategist. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like in 2014, Russia had the biggest presence at NATO headquarters. NATO had a transit hub on Russian territory, like deep inside Russian territory to help NATO get troops and material to Afghanistan. NATO was only thinking about Afghanistan and Ukrainians, mm -hmm. for the most part, it was only like a third of Ukrainians wanted to join NATO. It was a very unpopular thing. I think they were more interested in the EU rather than NATO. That's right. right. Exactly. Yeah, they wanted the economic benefits rather than like going to war with Russia. Oh, the European Union. Right. And then he invades in 2014 and suddenly NATO is all about Russia. Suddenly Ukrainians all want to join NATO. Now this time around, he was all about NATO is all up in my shit on my borders. And then, sorry. And then, uh, <laughs> no, I love it. See, I love talking about the war in this kind of language. You now you, this is how we talk about it that we can understand. This is you. how I discuss this with my friends, but then I go on TV and I have to filter. <laughs> yeah. You have to do that. Not on black on the air. Julia. Okay, good. Let it go yeah. here. Okay, yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. But all the saber rattling suddenly Finland, which has been, neutral forever is like um can we join like knock knock and sweden wants to join nato sweden yes they can get some really good chairs at nato you know and finland wants to join nato and so russia's like oh we'll attack you too if you join nato and then just this week bosnia was like 
hey NATO, what's up? You up? You know, and remember us from the nineties. <laughs> You up. Sup, NATO, you up? <laughs> yeah, sup, NATO. Come through. Come through, NATO. Come through. <laughs> so now the Russians uh yesterday threatened to invade Bosnia. Oh god. And it's like you couldn't even invade Ukraine. Like, chill out. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Okay, let me ask you this, Julie. Where does the idolatry of Putin in the U.S. come from? It, it happens a lot on Fox with some people. Some don't. I know that the right is kind of split on this in some ways, but Trump clearly idolized Putin so blatantly, especially when he threw our intelligence under the bus. I think it was in yep. Helsinki or yep. whatever it was, you know, which was I've never seen anything like that. But, you know. George Bush said, I, you know, I looked in his soul and I saw <laughs> something good or whatever he said. Obama kind of just let him walk into Crimea with just, I think he felt he could deal with Putin, but I'm not sure what exactly that relationship was. You know, I was confused over that relationship during that time. Are we revering him too much or is it because they have all those nukes? We're just kind of like kick gloving him. Yeah, it's a lot of things. As we see, he can do a lot of damage even without the nukes. I think. Obama was, his administration tried to reset the relationship, but also Obama, I think rightly thought he was better than Putin and really kind of condescended to him. <laughs> oh, now I got to give him props for that. <laughs> but um, it's interesting, like talking to people in the White House now and people who were in the White House when Obama was there and who were on the phone calls between the US president and Putin. And everybody says that every call with Obama started with this long lecture by Putin about history and like what Obama doesn't get. That's some racist shit right there as far as I'm concerned. Well, right. just hold on because it gets worse. Guess who he doesn't do that with? Biden. Or Trump. I'm sure he didn't. Who well, really I think need, Trump who really needed, needed that history lecture. <laughs> That's the motherfucker that needed the history lesson. That's right. Yeah. So uh, he doesn't do it with Biden. He kind of assumes Biden knows. But with Obama, who is a younger black man, he would start. It would be like these 45 minute long tirades about like oh, Jesus Christ. And your assumption as to why is exactly right. Russians are quite racist. That's a fact, by the way. And like I've known this for a long time. I did this little show called The Bernie Mac Show years ago. And uh, I put in this one scene where there's this Russian worker, this immigrant at Bernie's house. And I and I put in a little passive aggressive racism you know, there that always happens. So he's like, he's work. He's a handyman working. Bernie says, so 
this is your house, huh? He goes, yeah. I said, so you own? It's like, yeah, motherfucker, <laughs> I own this house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, but that, because that shit used to happen to me all the time. Where it's oh, like, really? Oh, yeah. It's this whole passive aggressive, wait, how can you have more than I have right now? Mm-hmm. You know, type of thing, you know, that I see from that region. I'll just say that region of the world towards people Oh, I mean, color. that region of the world It's pretty is... fucked up. In that department. Extremely xenophobic, extremely anti-Semitic. I mean, I'm just, I'm amazed that, I mean, Ukraine gave us the word pogrom, but now it has a Jewish president, which is mind-blowing. I'll tell you a story about Russia and racism. You're from Russia. You were born in Russia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm from the Soviet Union, from Mm -hmm. Moscow. And yeah, it's like, it's it's real. People um, really don't like Black people, even though there are quite a bit of Black Russians I'm friends with some of them, like people who are mixed race. Yeah. Um, Because there were a lot of African students in the Soviet Union. Oh, interesting. And in Russia. Yeah, this was Mm -hmm. part of the Soviet Union's like soft power approach. And actually, the last piece I ran on Puck was with my friend Anna Makanju, who is half Ukrainian Jew, half Nigerian princess. And she was Biden's advisor on Ukraine when he was vice president. That, that's a serious power play of identity there. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, but um, let me tell you a, a quick story about Russian racism. Um, in 2009, Karim Suleimanov, who is this Russian oligarch, but who is from Dagestan, and there's a lot of racism. Russians really don't like people from the Caucasus. They call them black asses and are very racist against them. But then the head of Morgan Stanley, who was black, was visiting Moscow. And somebody said to Karim Suleimanov, do you want to meet this guy? He's in Moscow. And he's like, yeah, sure. Bring by the head of Morgan Stanley. And they bring him over to his sweet, sweet pad. And he opens the door and he looks at him and then he turns to them person next to him is like who is this and they're like this is the head of morgan stanley and he's like no but who is this and they're like this is the head of morgan stanley and he was like you didn't have anyone else like (laughs) it's just yeah very bad but it's funny because this was somebody who was um even though he was an oligarch he's kind of very low down on the kind of racial hierarchy of russia and the soviet union anyway just a fun little aside. Yes. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, this this tangent really can go on. But uh, let me ask you this. Does Ukraine have a chance here? What is What are our chances here? I think Ukraine does have a chance. I think they have a chance to bog the Russians down mm-hmm. to the point where they just run out of everything. And they could really hold off the Russians for a long time mm-hmm. and save some part of the country and some part of their sovereignty Mm -hmm. maybe not the whole thing but part of it they might also fall and the russians might take over and put in a puppet regime but then they would have to occupy the country because if they put in a puppet regime and leave the ukrainians will topple that person Mm -hmm. immediately right but then i think there would be a really bloody insurgency because i think a good chunk of the population would be so enraged. I mean, they are so enraged and you can understand why. We've had examples of this in the past. So uh, Nikita Khrushchev, one of one of the things he's known for or lesser known for, but should be known more for, he used to be the boss of Ukraine, of Soviet Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And after the war, he was in charge of putting down the Western Ukrainian insurgency from 1945 to 1947. Um, uh, people who like hid in the forests and fought against the Soviets 
for two years after the war was over. My great uncle was actually kidnapped by these guys at one point. Wow. He was posted to Ivano-Frankivsk, which is was part of the newly annexed Western Ukrainian land, mm-hmm. newly annexed by the Soviets. And he was posted there. He was a doctor. And in the middle of the night, some guys showed up from the you know Western Ukrainian partisans and knocked on his door, kidnapped him, took him into the forest because one of their guys had broken his leg. So they, he set the leg and they brought him back and they were like, we'll kill you if you tell anybody. And he was like, I'm obviously not going to tell anybody because then the Soviets will fucking kill me. Right. So Ukrainians have a history of this. Like they know how to do this. It's in their, you know, it's in their bones. What's going to happen with Zelensky? I hate to ask this question, but does he survive this? I hope so. Yeah. You know, it's, um, I was talking to a friend who's a veteran Russia watcher and we were talking about, you know, this fantasy everybody has about Putin dying and and the war magically ending. And mm-hmm. she said, yeah, but don't you think it's more likely that Zelensky dies first? Mm. And then what happens? You know, there's no obvious successor necessarily. Ukraine going into this war, it had a very deeply dysfunctional government, lots of factionalism and fight and fighting and just petty shit. And does it dissolve into that once this leader who's really holding them together in this war, Mm -hmm. once he's gone, going into this war, his approval rating was 25%. He was like, not a very good president. Zelensky. Yeah. Wow. He's just, but he's a really good communicator, right? And that's so important in a war. He's like a comic. He was an actor. Yeah. Well, this is what's crazy is the way he became famous in Ukraine is he played a role of a guy who accidentally kind of stumbles into the presidency and then stares down a Russian threat. Wow. Wow. And then he accidentally stumbles into the presidency and stares down a Russian threat. You can't make this shit up, man. And it's still available on streaming services inside Russia. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Yo, they don't censor that. Yeah. No. Do you still have relatives in Russia? I have family friends left uh, mm-hmm. and some distant relatives. A lot of my friends who are my age have fled. So something like 200,000 Russians have fled this war. And, you know, they obviously have it a lot easier than the Ukrainians, but they also don't have any of the sympathy, the global sympathy that Ukrainians have. Sure. And a lot of them are scared to ask for help because they don't want to pull resources away from Ukrainians, even though they're also pretty fucked. Like when Visa and MasterCard pulled out of Russia, the only people, only Russians it really affected were the ones who fled, who now can't use their visas that are tied to Russian bank accounts abroad. But people who are inside Russia can still use their visas and MasterCards because all the payments are handled by third-party processors. Wow, it's crazy. But the friends who are the friends who are left are uh, generally older, more well-off, and the older ones are like, "We survived the Soviet Union. We survived the '90s. Like, we'll figure this out too." Has this affected you on a personal level? I mean, like, do you feel maybe more emotional about this than other things? And how has it affected you in that sense? I mean, it's affected me very deeply. And, mm-hmm. you know, because I'm from this part of the world, I'm from Moscow, but my, you know, my grand, my great grandparents were all from three quarters of them were from Ukraine and they were from cities that are now under attack by Russians. So it almost, to me, it almost feels like a civil war and, 
I'm not unique. There's a lot of people who have relatives in Ukraine, Russian people who have relatives in Ukraine, friends in Ukraine. Then there's also the World War II trauma that is so Mm -hmm. present, even for, you know, for those of us who were born decades after it ended. We all know how much smaller families are because of the Holocaust, because of World War II, because of these insane casualty figures. I once counted and something like two or three dozen family members of mine either died in the Holocaust or died fighting the Nazis in the Red Army. You know, I look at some of these images and I think, you know, if they were black and white, it would look just like, you know, World War II. So it's just, you know, and then the fact that it's that they're calling each other Nazis, the fact that this is being justified in my mother Mm -hmm. tongue is just devastating. I mean, I was really affected by what happened in Syria, but this is like a whole new level because Syria was just like basic human empathy. And this is like, this is like my roots. This is where I'm from. And both these countries are being destroyed because of this one stupid man. Yeah, I agree with that. And it makes me wonder, um, are we seeing the last gasp of a dying empire here with Russia? And to me, I feel like China's just waiting on the side going, let us know when you're done, Russia, because... (laughs) We're ready to just rule the world with America right now. And as far as we're concerned, we were putting America on a clock, too. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of what the U.S. did in World War II in Europe. Mm -hmm. They were like, I don't know, do we get on the side of Stalin or Hitler? Like, both options are pretty bad. So, like, let us know. We'll just let this play out a little bit. Yeah, Japan, stop it. Stop it, Japan. (laughs) We're not ready to get it. Yeah, right. The focus (laughs) in the U.S. was for a long time the, the Pacific theater. I think it could be you know, the, the wheels coming off and the beginning Mm -hmm. of the end, or it could be the beginning of decades of this kind of aggressive impoverished hermit empire, like Iran or North Korea. Yeah. Because the more irrational and isolated Putin is, the more of a danger he is to the world in the same way North Korea is by being unpredictable. It's one thing for us to predict him doing bad things, but it's worse for us to not be able to predict him doing anything, right? That's right. Yeah. And it's just, uh, it's things that you would think are beyond the pale that are suddenly not. Yes, exactly. They become the norm so fast. Like we are actively discussing whether there will be a nuclear attack in in Ukraine on the, you know, European continent. And it's like, what the fuck? Like, how did we get here in 2022? Yeah. Julia, it seems real to me, too. That's, it is. I was thinking it's about so this this real. morning. Before, we're, before we were talking, I was thinking, fuck, we could see a nuclear attack. This is crazy. Yeah, like we made it through the Cold War without it, but yeah. it might be happening now. I really hope it doesn't happen, obviously, but it's a real possibility again. Do you think the rest of Europe will be drawn into this at some point from a fighting uh, point of view? I don't know. I hope not, mm-hmm. given what Putin seems to want, which is a kind of end of days confrontation. I worry, you know, these things often don't stay contained. And wars, you know, once they start, they take on a momentum of their own and they lead yeah. they lead us to places we never anticipated. Like I was thinking about this right before he invaded, because it was at that point really clear that he was about to. And I was just thinking like, did anybody imagine when Archduke Franz Ferdinand was shot in June 1914 that it would there would be a straight line from that to the Holocaust? But there is, right? Like, but nobody yeah. in 1940, if you told somebody in 1914, is like, you know where this leads, right? Is like mechanized slaughter of people. He's like, what are you talking about? Right? Right. Or, you know, did we know that the war in Syria would lead to Brexit? 
and the rise of the far right in Europe. Or that the, the French and their involvement in Vietnam, you know, how that led to this whole conflict, you know, from the 50s. Exactly. And us just thinking, ah, uh, this seems over. They were there for about 100 years. I think they are right now. Yeah, nope. yeah, yeah. We'll just send in like a dozen guys. What's the worst that can happen? So exactly. that that's what I'm worried about is that wars have a momentum and a logic of their own. And yeah. once it starts, you can't really stop that boulder rolling down the hill. Do you think Biden has a red line? Like, even if he hasn't told us, do you think he has a red line? And what would be your guess? I think he has told us that the, the red line is uh, attacking a NATO member. But he's told us, but we've been told about red lines before. <laughs> I, I think he actually will have to follow through. I mean, I don't know how he wouldn't be able to. I mean, the only time ever that Article 5 of the NATO Charter was invoked, you know, the collective defense thing, was when NATO came to America's aid after 9-11. And so all these mm -hmm. members sent their troops to fight and die in Afghanistan for the U.S. And if, you know, a NATO mem member is attacked, including, you know, the Poles, the Brits, the Germans, the French. Um, so if Poland is attacked, what are we going to say? Like, uh, that wasn't really an attack. You know, if, if Poles sent people to fight in Afghanistan for us, we kind of have to we will see what happens any last thoughts oh tell us about puck and some oh. of the stuff you're doing over there before we go and i really appreciate you spending the time here uh talking about this julia it's it's as we know it's a fluid situation yeah we're talking about this on friday march 18th and uh so who knows by the time you guys listen to this it could be a whole new situation there. might be listening to it you know, and the nu nuclear fallout is interfering with the trans oh, transmission. No. <laughs> Guys, remember when they had podcasts? I had this remnant from a podcast. <laughs> it's from a time capsule. <laughs> yes. Uh, but tell us about Puck and what you're doing there. And Puck is the best. Puck is a new media venture. And it's mm -hmm. about the, you know, the conversations and the issues that are being discussed at the highest levels in the four corners of American power, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, Wall Street, and Washington. And it's irreverent. It doesn't have like our little logo is a little devil's tail, which I love. It doesn't have that kind of detached baronial air that you have in the New York Times. Like the New York Times is great for some things. Mm -hmm. Our motto is puck starts where the news ends. So if you want to know what's like really going on, what's really being talked about in, you know, the halls of power, where, where you should go, but also just helping people make sense of what the hell's going on. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a, a hybrid reporting op-ed type of essay writing, right? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. There's more, you can feel the person writing it. That it's not like yeah. spit out by a news writing algorithm. There's like a person who's there, who hears things, who will explain things to you, will tell you, will like bring you in uh, to the conversation. It feels a lot more human and natural mm -hmm. because in my experience in, you know, I've spent a decade reporting in Washington reporters know so much more than they tell their readers thousand percent and in part it's because they don't want to jeopardize their sources in part it's because it's just like something gets left on the cutting room floor and it didn't make it into the story um but they know so 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 much more than they tell their readers and i personally feel like 
the readers deserve to know. Like, our, it's, it is important to maintain relationships with sources so they can tell you, continue telling things. But I think this is something that political reporters in Washington often forget is that your first loyalty and your first priority is not your source. It's not the people in power. It's your readers. Like your responsibility is to them, not to the people in power. And it's the culture of the uh, place you're at, too, in terms mm -hmm. of what you can reveal. That's right. Um, is a big part of it, too, where it's like, no, no, no. Sorry, homie. We don't we don't we don't report that shit, that kind of shit here. Mm -hmm. Sorry. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Know? So, for example, this summer when a, a woman named Felicia Sanmez, who's a reporter at The Washington Post, sued her employers mm -hmm. because she revealed publicly that she was a victim of uh, a sexual assault. And The Washington Post said, oh, well, then you're biased and you can't cover sexual assault. But they let a man who had been accused of sexual assault write about the Me Too movement. Hmm. So she sued them. And I, I had this idea. My bosses were like, yeah, sure, go for it. I wrote a piece about, you know, the idea of objectivity and what it actually is and the way it's being discussed in newsrooms, especially among younger reporters, reporters of color, female reporters, like what is objectivity? Is it just the point of view of the white male? Like, is that the standard experience and everything else is biased or special? And if, it, if that's the case, should we get rid of that or should we amend it? And, you know, maybe objectivity in that sense should not be the goal. Objectivity has been on trial the last couple of years. Good. It should be. So yeah, it's fun to get to do those things that kind of question the status quo and like poke at it. And yeah, it's great. I love it. Well, thank you so much for being here and give us the at least information that will suffice for now <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on this situation. I just want to say that like history isn't always destiny. And the fact that, you know, Ukraine has had a very checkered past when it comes, for example, to anti-Semitism, they're, they're clearly overcoming that. And, you know, Russia mm -hmm. isn't great on race and other things, but they're like, not all Russians are terrible people. Not all Russians are racist imperialists. And it's important to see people from these places as individuals because not everybody supports this war. Is it significant to the Ukrainians that Zelensky is Jewish or is it just, oh yeah, he's Jewish? Oh, I didn't even know that. I think it's kind of the latter, which is incredible. I mean, like it shows you mm -hmm. how far they've come. And I think that's kind of at the root of this and what breaks my heart the most about this war, which is that Ukraine has a very checkered past, it has been the victim of a lot of things from Moscow, but also itself has had a very checkered past. But it has been trying for the last 30 years to break free of that past and to move into the future and to become a, a kind of kind of a different nation and to lean into other parts, better parts of its identity. And it feels like they're being punished for that. And like Russia is punishing them and trying to drag them back into their kind of toxic history. When did Kiev become Kiev? Oh, it always was Kiev. So Kiev is the is Ukrainian. Right. But to the outside world, everyone yeah. said is Kiev, you know, but now everyone acknowledges what the Ukrainians have always regarded it, right? I think after probably 2014 when Ukrainians 2014. Okay. When I think Ukrainians really started insisting on it like don't call us by our Russian name, call us our real name. And 
That's also really hard for Russians. They're like, what the fuck are they talking about? They're Kiev. Well, I was going to say to the Russians, it's like, motherfuckers, what happened? You know, we all we did was take Crimea. Why you got to change your name? You know? Yeah. But I mean, this is also the irony of it, which is that Ukraine wasn't fully clear on what it was mm. before 2014. But Putin, the master strategist, is giving Ukraine such a good idea of what it, he's building their national identity by trying to say that they're nothing, that they're not a real country and that they're just literally, they're called little Russians in this kind of imperial set, right? And he's giving them their national identity, which is just like brilliant strategy, dude. Yeah, it's one of the most fascinating things to me is to tell people, guys, this country really doesn't exist. It's not real. I mean, it sounds like it is, but it's really not. We're going in there to give them some structure, yeah, what is this Kiev? What the fuck? Am I right? <laughs> Who's with me here? Right. Oh, nobody? Nobody? <laughs> right. Nobody? You will be. Trust me, you will be. <laughs> like he's counting on that, that that's just going to work. And the more he says it, I mean, as you say, especially certain generations are just going to go along with it. We're just trying to help a brother out. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. just relax, Kiev, as we put this needle in your arm. Just relax. <laughs> It's all going to be okay. <laughs> Just relax. Yeah. I know. Julia, thank you so much. Good luck with Puck. Uh, no pun intended, whatever that is. And we look forward to reading all your great stuff and seeing you pop up in the tube whenever you're there. Thank you so much, Larry. This was really fun. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, so great to meet you, too. This you, is awesome. too. Yeah. All right. Julia Yaffe, everybody. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like Ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.